Good evening, Grace. I got to confess to you that uh, I think a lot of times when it comes to Good Friday, we are in such a hurry to get to the resurrection. We're, we're in such a hurry for the celebration that we tend to sort of skip over what's really happened on Good Friday. And so I hope that tonight, that even though things are a little bit different, and even though the, the mood is very somber, and even though uh, it seems like the weight of the world is weighing down on us, I know it does, it feels like that for me. I hope that, that we can spend this time together appreciating who our God, who our Savior truly is, who Jesus is, and what he's done for us. Uh, and not be in such a hurry to get to Sunday, the third day, Remember, the third day, the story continues. But for right now, let's just spend this time together feeling the, the weight and the seriousness uh, that, that Jesus had for the mission he came to accomplish. You heard in the reading uh, at least a couple of times about a garden, this idea of what is a garden? When I say the word garden, what, what does that mean to you? What images pop into your mind? Do you, do you think of all of these different colors and shapes and sizes of plants just teeming with, with life? Do, do you think of, of smelling maybe the, the unspoiled air that has no pollution or anything like that? It's just that clean, fresh-smelling air do you, do you hear the, the songs and the sounds of, of birds and animals and insects as they explore their surroundings? This, this garden is something that brings peace to many people. Uh, people spend time in the garden searching for tranquility, peace. And there's good reason for that because a garden essentially is a collision of all of these different kinds of life that God has created, just all coming together into one beautiful thing, this harmonious relationship. And our creator, the God of the universe, the God of all that exists, when it comes to the garden, well, it's kind of the, the culmination of his creativity. In Genesis, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, we find that God goes through and he speaks creation into existence. He creates things from nothing. He creates the plants and the animals and, and everything. And then he creates human beings. He creates the first person from the dust or the dirt of the ground and he breathes life into the dust and becomes a human. And so God put the first humans, Adam and Eve, in a garden. We call that the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, there was no separation. There was no disruption between the people and God. They were able to walk with God and talk with God face to face. They were able to have their lives, their entire lives, sustained by nothing more than what God had had and continued to provide for them. It was a perfectly harmonious relationship. 
And it's just a beautiful image. But it didn't last. It didn't last, and we at least know something about the story, right? God had laid all of these wonderful things out for them and told them, whatever you do, and you can do any of these things, but don't eat from this particular tree. Don't eat from this particular... It was a warning. But Adam and Eve decided, well, they knew better than God. They took matters into their own hands, and this, this crafty serpent we see that shows up, he shows up and he knows just exactly how to advertise to them, to get them to go a different way. It's something like maybe a tagline, why have a God when you can be God? Why have a God when you can be God? Doesn't that sound so enticing? Doesn't it sound like, wow, I wonder if I could have that? That temptation is is very real, and it's just as real now as it was then. So they gave in to the temptation. They started listening to another voice, a voice that was not God's voice. And that voice started to plant seeds that were different than what was growing in the garden. That voice started to plant seeds of doubt and fear and suspicion about well, maybe God's really not very good after all. Because if he really was good, why would he be holding the best things back from you? Why wouldn't he give you the... Why, why can't you eat from that tree? You surely won't die. And the seeds of this voice and following that voice didn't bring forth new life. The fruit of it was death. The fruit of it was, was sin and division and destruction. And instantly, the relationship with God was fractured, broken, destroyed. And so they were afraid. And they hid. And they were ashamed. In Genesis 3, verse 8, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They were ashamed. They were ashamed. They were embarrassed. And they had to come to terms with the fact that they had followed a different voice, a competing voice, a voice that told them to do exactly what God had told them not to do. But they had followed that voice because they wanted what we all want. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be calling the shots. They wanted to be in control. But there were consequences for this action. Big ones. If you look in a little bit later in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which they were taken. He drove them out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, the entrance to the garden that was full of life, bursting at the seams with life, was then guarded in a way that would bring certain death to anyone who tried to get back in there. 
Isn't that interesting? It goes from life to death, and they can't get back in. They can't get back to the tree of life. The sword, the flaming sword, will put an end to that effort right away. Paradise was lost. But the story wasn't over. Right in the middle of God explaining to the serpent the curse and the consequence of what had happened, what had transpired. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes this interesting statement. He says to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that is a pointer to someday the offspring of the woman will be the one who will crush the head of the snake. This, this promised one who is pointed to and alluded to, this promised one would come someday to make all things right. He would come to restore and redeem all that had been lost to sin, to the separation, to the division. He's the promised one. He's the one that's pointed to all throughout Scripture. The prophets all pointed to him. All of Scripture, actually, in one way or another, points to him. This promised one is Jesus. And Jesus is somebody we find in the story we just heard in yet another garden. We find Jesus in another garden. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, you just heard this read. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met with his disciples there. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Do you hear that? Jesus had often met with his disciples in the garden. Doesn't that sound familiar? Because remember, Jesus, the word of God made flesh, who was in this garden with these disciples, was meeting again face to face with them, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. The people were not separated from God. They were with God. Well, here the disciples are with Jesus. They're with God in the flesh. Had everything been restored? Was everything all set to go? Had everything been redeemed? I mean, the disciples were, in fact, meeting face to face with God, God in the flesh. And so, just like it says in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So maybe this time it's different. This time it's different. They, they heard the voice of Jesus. They followed the voice of Jesus. Jesus has been with them the whole time. They've been with Jesus walking and talking face to face. Has it all been restored? Well, things are different in this garden too because we know that didn't last either. It's because of Jesus the good shepherd, 
as he talked about himself, my sheep hear my voice. He's the good shepherd. And because he's the good shepherd, things in this garden, even though they still didn't work out, it was different. Well, how was it different? Well, when death showed up to this particular garden, in the form of Judas who betrayed Jesus, and in the form of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and 600 soldiers of the Roman death machine, when they all showed up, when death itself came knocking at the door of the garden, Jesus didn't put the disciples out of the garden. Jesus went out and confronted death himself. Because like a good shepherd, he protected the sheep. He protected the sheep. He gave himself up for their sake and for ours. John 15 says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Well, we'd like to think it all worked out then at that point. We'd like to think that, well, these disciples, this round, this batch of disciples, well, they were much better off than the, you know, Adam and Eve. Well, they screwed it up. But, but these people, well, they're the ones that got it right because, well, they're much, they're much smarter and, and they're much more, more diligent. And obviously they're very serious and they're really, really, really committed. Just like Peter himself says in Matthew 26, verse 35, he says, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. But oh, how things change. And yet, they stay the same. It wasn't long before Peter did exactly what he claimed that he would never do. He was out there denying Jesus. Yes, of course he was denying Jesus. But did you catch in the reading how he was denying Jesus. He wasn't just denying Jesus like, oh, I don't know this Jesus. It's worse than that. He denies being Jesus' disciple. He denies being Jesus' follower. He basically is saying, I, look, I am certainly not with him. I don't listen to him. I don't follow him. I don't have anything to do with him. But it doesn't even stop there. Because he goes on to say, I wasn't even in the garden with him. That wasn't me. I wasn't even at the garden. We should know and we should understand that Peter, the one that Jesus called the rock, Peter, his betrayal is total and complete. His rejection of Jesus is complete. And is the case with sin always, it doesn't just stop. It continues to spread. It's a darkness of destruction and division. And so the religious leaders and the chief priests and the Pharisees, well, they were so obsessed and they were so hyper-focused on getting what they wanted. And what did they want more than anything? They wanted Jesus silenced. They wanted him dead. And they were going to do anything they possibly could to make that happen. Anything it took to silence Jesus. Matter of fact, eventually, 
they even sacrificed their own convictions, their own confessions of faith. We'll hear this in a little bit. But at, at, at one point, they, they actually shout out the words, we have no king but Caesar. The betrayal is weighty. Here we have the people of God that are in total rebellion against the faithfulness, the providence of God, and how God has taken care of them for thousands of years, rejecting it all in a moment to pledge their allegiance to Rome and to Caesar instead of their true king. Instead of tuning their ear to God, they, they chose to listen to the voice of Rome. And we might be tempted to say, okay, all right, we get all that. Adam and Eve, they blew it. The disciples didn't work out for them either. But, but we're different. Well, we're different. I mean, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And of course, I'm much smarter and I'm much more diligent and I'm really, 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 really committed. It's such a familiar story. It's such a familiar story, but it's also a fairy tale. It's a fantasy. We give ourselves all this credit and, and we think, well, not us. Well, we wouldn't have done that. We would have put a stop to it. But all of us, all of us have and do reject Jesus in one way or another. We do it. Every time we've said, you know what? I've got it from here, thanks. I don't need you, Jesus. I'm going to do it my way because I think my way is the best way. I don't like your way, so I would rather do it my way. But the world not only helps us keep that fantasy going, this idea that, well, we would be different. It cheers us on while we do it. The world tells us, well, you're really not that bad off. I mean, you're certainly not as bad as that other person. You know who they are. At least, uh, you know, you can get this figured out. You're smart. You're committed. You're everything. You don't need God. You just, you just need to believe in yourself. You need to purchase the right products or subscribe to the right services or follow the right famous people or, or buy the right books. Then you can help yourself. You can be this person in your mind that you think that you are. But the reality is, if that's true, if it's true that we can figure it out, then what is Christ doing on the cross? Why would an all-powerful, almighty God freely give himself up to be tortured and killed in the most humiliating way possible? Well, because we wouldn't have it any other way. We're not who we think we are. We are just as much in the rebellion business as ever anyone has been. And sure, we might like to pretend that things are different, but think about this. The very disciples who literally gave up everything 
to follow Jesus. They followed him day and night. They spent every waking moment with him. They went wherever he went. And they all ended up turning their back on Jesus. Peter, the rock, I'm not with him. I don't follow him. Our sin is what blinds us to what saves us and binds us to what is killing us. I'm going to say that again. Our sin is what blinds us to what saves us and binds us to what is killing us. And until we come face to face with that reality, until we stare that in the face, until we know that it's true, what the Bible says about us, which is that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us are sinners. Until we're ready to admit that, then we continue to betray and reject Jesus over and over and over again. We say we don't need it. And yet God says, well, you sure as heck do. All of us have fallen short. And this, this so-called trial of Jesus that we're going to hear in just a few moments, this trial is really a trial of the whole world. It's not just a trial of Jesus. It's actually a trial of the whole world. And the whole world says a big collective no thanks to Jesus. Because honestly... What kind of king gets himself crucified? Uh, what kind of conqueror gets conquered by a Roman cross? What kind of savior won't even act to save himself? The one we need. The one we need. The one who was nailed to a Roman cross for all of our fears and all of our doubts and all of our betrayals and all of our schemes and all of our endless idols, the same one who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane so much for his followers, not just his disciples, but for you and for me. He prayed so hard for us and on our behalf that he actually started sweating blood. That one, the one who gave his life to put to death the very things that we can't, or at least think we can't, live without this one is Jesus, and it's only through him, it's only through him that we can finally get back to an unbroken relationship with God the Father. We can finally have peace with God. We can finally live out the life that God is, is calling us into and leading us into because of Jesus. So you should have, on your way in, each one of you should have gotten a, a card with a, with a pen. If you didn't, maybe just throw your hand up in the air and somebody will swing over and get one for you. But I want you to think about some questions. You don't have to be in a hurry here. We've got time. 
But I want you to think about some questions. As you look at this card, you'll see that it says, uh, it's a quote from Matthew, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. So the questions I have are, what is blinding you from seeing the truth about Jesus? In other words, what is this sin in your life that's blinding you to the good news of who Jesus is? What is is blinding you from seeing the truth about Jesus? What burdens are stopping you from fully following him? What are the burdens that you're carrying that you need to get rid of? And what binds you and keeps you captive and holds you back from this life that God has for you, that God wants for you? Maybe you could ask it this way. What what do you need to be freed from once and for all? What do you need to be freed from? What do you need this miracle who is Jesus to come in and take from you? So sometime between now and when we, we end up leaving this place, would you just take that time, write something down, and then when you leave, eventually, don't be in a hurry on that either, but when you leave, When you go out there, you're going to see, for lack of a better description, a burn barrel. And I want you to take this card and whatever you've written down on it and put it in that fire on your way out as you head out. Okay, so prayerfully consider this and ask God to search your heart. But know this, as we feel the weight of sin and we retrace and in some ways, just a little way, relive these final steps of Jesus' life on earth. Remember that in what appears to the world as nothing more than the biggest defeat in all of human history, the biggest weakness, the biggest embarrassment through the cross, Jesus proved once and for all that he is stronger than we could ever even comprehend. He is the one. He is the one to create us anew, to give us what we can never give to ourselves. He's the one who gives us a clean heart. He's the one that that gives us his eyes to see and his ears to hear and the strength to follow him and to know his voice and to follow after him wherever it is he is guiding each one of us. Rest assured that, that we will meet him again in a garden. The story It's not over. Come back on Sunday and you'll hear the rest of the story. And now I'm just going to pray for us as we we think about what we might be writing on the the card. And then we're going to hear the rest of the reading, scripture reading. And then uh, don't be in a hurry to leave. But after that, we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that, Lord, even though we betray you, rebel against you, say, ah, you know what? We got it figured out. 
We don't really need you. Lord, that doesn't stop you from coming to us again and again and again, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the miracle of what you did on the cross. Lord, the forgiveness that you give us is something we we may never even fully understand, but we sure are thankful for it. So Lord, we just give this time to you and we ask that you work in our hearts, that you, that you maybe bubble up to the surface in each one of us what you want us to let go of, to give us eyes to see what is binding us to the ways leading to death and destruction and division. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We give the rest of this time to you now ask you to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.